So this morning, um, we're going to begin a small series on, as you see there, a small series on wisdom and the need for wisdom in the uh, Christian life. What we do typically is, uh, as you know, we like to um, do expositions of whole books or at least large uh, literary sections of scripture at a time. So we've just completed um, Genesis 1 through 11 for a season of time. And uh, before we jump into what's coming next, which will be the book of Galatians, we'll deal with the book of Galatians coming up, and we'll probably be there, I don't know, a a year and a quarter, give or take, somewhere in there for the book of Galatians. Um, And 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 so before we do something like that, um, between Genesis, which was quite a haul for 1 through 11, and then the beginning of a new set of, uh, 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 a a new pathway that we'll, we'll jump on together, we like to do a small section of time in between those large commitments to basically just come up for oxygen and take a minute and kind of recalibrate and get our senses together. Okay, we, we, just, we just hauled for a long time in Genesis. Okay, we went text by text, a lot of different ideas and moving parts. And okay, let's chill for a minute. And then, all right, let, let, let's get our bearings and let's jump back in for a long season yet again to join with an author and authorial intent and be able to reap the best benefits of the text that we can. What's going to be different about this coming up for Oxygen, so to speak, series, this, this little bit, is um, it's not really that. It's a little bit more, I'm hoping that you, you'll think hard and you'll think with me. Um, it was really hard to pare down what needs to be discussed in the realm of wisdom in the evangelical church. It's really hard to pare it down because it's really bad. It's really bad. Um, I'll get into more of that in a moment. And, and I warn you, I forewarn you, and for those of you who are regular attenders here, you know we like to, uh, we like to deal with the text. This morning's going to be light on text. Just because of the nature of what we're doing, I- I'm setting up what we're about to do together for the next few weeks. So it's going to be text light. Don't be offended. I want to be helpful. So I really need to lay a good foundation for where we're going. Because we really need to take serious the role of wisdom in the life of the Christian um, it, it could be said, maybe up front even, um, if your view, perhaps, of your Christian life, or as a Christian, your view is that, 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 that it's, um, you know, you're going to find a verse in the Bible that will meet every single issue that you face, and you have all of the secrets to life right before you, you're going to be sorely disappointed. There is a need to apply the text of Scripture by wisdom. That you need to be a thoughtful person. And you need to know the text of Scripture. And and, and not treat it as an encyclopedia. But be able to know the text by being in conversation with it and reading it thoroughly. And, And what comes with that is conversation with other believers that are thoughtful also. And will help you engage in thoughtfulness. There's a huge requirement for that in the life of the pilgrim. And it's it. it, it, And I, I maybe overstate it. I don't think so. So for my mileage, I'm not. For yours, maybe I will be. But the evangelical church is so thoroughly theologically anemic. It's it's. Life outside the gate is not good. It's, it's very bad. And I don't say that just to, to ta- toss everyone under the bus. I'm saying collectively, we as a church have got to do better. Particularly the application of wisdom. So I'm going to speak about wisdom broadly just this morning and kind of set some parameters. And then it's going to kind of narrow as we go along over the next couple of weeks. And it's going to narrow particularly on relationship culture. Again, we could pick a million things to talk about together as believers and think deeply and long about it in the biblical text and try to sharpen each other on it. But male and female relationships are awful. They're awful in culture and how they're portrayed through media. And they're awful in the church because we end up just being numbed to what ought to be to us a problem. 
and it becomes the oxygen we breathe. And then it's the life that we begin to emulate. So we, I, I want to talk about that particularly. Um, and so for each of us, um, there's, there's many things in our lives, different personality types, different careers, different social interactions, different webs of relationships, different upbringings, and so on and so forth. So uh, throughout the series, I just ask that you think with me because some of this stuff is going to be particular to you because of who you are and the life setting that you're in. And some of it's going to be particular to you because of the life that you're in and the the context and the web of relationships that you have and the stimuli you're responding to. And then all of us will see the Captain Obvious points because we all are alive. And we'll see it. Like, yeah, I know that. That's true. We all live here on planet Earth. So so some of it's going to be that simple for all of us. But there's something going on in evangelicalism where we assume people are thinking. And they're not. And, and, and that's un, deeply unhealthy because that begins to ruin the Christian experience and the Christian life. And we'll get on to more of that in just a moment. So if I made sense so far, probably not because this is really hard to do, to, to narrow down what we really need to be getting at, nuts and bolts. But I'm setting a large-scale context for saying, We need to think and talk deeply about wisdom in general. We need the clarity in a complex world. We have to get it. Um, And then when we talk about wisdom, we're going to narrow, as I said, to relational wisdom. What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? What does it mean for me to interact with the world around me as a male? What does it mean for me to interact with the world around me as a female? And what does it mean for me as a male to interact with a female? And what does it mean for me as a female to interact with a male? What, 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 how, how do I think about these things? Because I'm being told or I'm being shown a model of how these things are supposed to be. And I need to wake up and realize I may be learning things or adopting things that are not the way it's meant to be. That would be my contention that you are, I am, that we will if we don't think. Let me begin then with you just for a moment that in our world, and I'm asking you to join in this with me, to think along with me in the need of wisdom. In our world, this would be, uh, again, me just laying the foundation. I'm pouring the cement right now for you. And and, And I hope it's stable and we'll build from here. But it would be my thought to share with you that together in our world, where self expression and self fulfillment are unquestioned values. Think about that just for a moment for yourself. Think in those, those categories in your, in your own mapping out of your own life. Self-expression and self-fulfillment are unquestioned values. In such a world where you're taught It's modeled for you. It's debated incessantly. You have to be a person of self-expression. A person who pursues at all costs self-fulfillment. It's an unquestioned value. The Christian position on male and female identity, male and female relationships, can feel absolutely unsustainable. Whether you're in academia, some of you, many of you students are pursuing uh, uh, academics, some of you fresh out of academics, some of us raising children in different academic settings, or you just look at culture, politics, any of the main headlines regarding personhood, identity, fulfillment, you can read those things or hear those things and respond internally as a Christian feeling that your position, or maybe we should say what the Bible has said, feels absolutely unsustainable. Even among some of your peers, those out in society at general, outside of the people of God, consider your position or my position or what we've conceived together for the sake of argument, the orthodox traditional view passed down generationally to the church of Christ is even immoral. Perhaps you felt the weight of that 
I think you probably have. And I, I, I think it, in such a cultural moment, and I, maybe it's better said than moment now that I think of it, but in such a cultural context, because we're not in a cultural moment. We're in a land that's going to exist for quite some time. We're in a context. It's not a lightning bolt where we can just figure out for the next few minutes, this thing too will pass. We're fundamentally making some paradigm shifts. So I would say to you and to me to think about it in terms of a cultural context. This is where we find ourselves. It's often relationships in such a context, not the biblical text. It's often relationships, not the biblical text that power the rejection of traditional Christian sexual ethics among believers. And again, this makes sense, right? The idea, and I don't mean to sound like a crank, uh, um, old-timey crank that someone might criticize, like, you know, you just sounded more like your father from 50 years ago. Something, I, I don't mean to sound backwoodsy to you, but surely you do get that the normalizing of behaviors through media, are typically paired with a likable personality. And I'm not saying take out your TV and throw it in the trash. I'm a few steps away from that tent meeting. But nonetheless, you do realize that, that, that what are to be you, to you, a believer, an otherwise aberrant way of living is being normalized, constantly normalized through relational method not through argumentation. And in many ways, when you find yourself adrift, perhaps ethically, what has been the weight of your concern? The facts or the relationships? The relationships. That has the greatest impact. And on a psychological level, that makes sense. It's not surprising at all. Again, we're social beings, you and I, human beings. We tend to trust the people around us. That's why they're around us. We tend to trust them, especially close friends. And and, and thus, our beliefs are either strengthened or weakened based on our friendships. We mentioned a while back, it's been a while, but it was, it was, I can't remember what particular sermon, somewhere in Genesis, I read an article for you from a psychologist who said that we are typically people are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So you kind of take your personality profile, you throw you in a group of people that you found in the various profiles that match your profile, and you kind of have a web of relationship. That's your group of friends. And so, yeah, we have various profiles. Maybe you didn't get deep down to the psychology of it all, and you didn't interview each person to see if they're acceptable to your flow, but you realized you are basically finding a way to be the average of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. So, again, who are they? Who are the people, then, that you spend the most amount of time with? For some of us, uh, it's the work relationships, and you can't help that. You can't say, you know, this person just does not work with my personality profile. This person doesn't work with my faith profile. I can't work in this environment. Obviously, work is going to be that. I'm talking about by way of choice and recreation, not company-wide emailing, but, but by choice. Who are those five people? Because, again, as psychological beings, human beings that relate, you will be changed for better, for worse, but you will not remain the same based on the relationships personally that you hold. You shouldn't want to remain the same. They're people that you love and trust. Sometimes that can be frustrating, though. Sure, as a pastor, and talking about these topics sometimes, you wish at a moment the biblical text would prevail, but again, it's not that sterile. And we get it. All of us feel the weight of relationally connecting though we may hear a biblical text. This is why I would encourage you to think about those folks that you're spending the most amount of time with, what the impact is that you're having on them and they are having on you. 
Because I would encourage you that we need to draw, that is, each of us, Christians, those who confess Christ, say the Apostles' Creed together, or Nicene Creed this morning together, that we need to draw courage. It's hard. It's hard to, to, to make a, a courageous stand. It is. It's going to be costly to you. And I get it. It is. It's hard work to maintain obedient ethics to the Lord, particularly when you're speaking sexual relationships. It's hard. You know, the ship has left the harbor a long time ago on premarital sex, a long time ago. It might seem like an irrelevant thing to even fight, but it's not. It's not irrelevant. And it's hard. But who are the people that you surround yourself with that either play a part to help and to aid, to hold accountable and to mentor in discipleship in order to fortify the courage needed? Again, we need, I would encourage you as an individual, how you're spending your time, that you and I, that we as Christians in this age, in this time, need mature analysis, trusted friends who share our biblical convictions in relationship matters. We need them. Again, I'm not arguing that we should be insular, that you should just find the five people you'll spend the most amount of time with that will say every single thing that you say and, and will cross the T's and dot the I's exactly as you do, and that's a safe haven. And no, not at all. I'm not arguing for being insular or unchallenged in the life that you live and the friends that you pick. But you do need to be orthodox. You need to invest wisely in relationships with fellow believers. Relationships that will benefit you and give clarity to complexity by being able relationally to rely on that person, what do you think about X? What is my business even asking this person? There's a shared fundamental basis that we're both looking at the world with. And on that basis, I begin to ask more complex questions and receive feedback. That is a critical part of growing in a life of wisdom. As the church, I guess I would say just briefly to you, as the church, we need the church as an organism. We need the gathering of the saints on Lord's Day. We need the community that flows from it. We need the orthodoxy. We need the confession. We need the reminder to repent. We need the supper. We need baptism. We need the church as a living organism in our lives. Again, when ethics shift among our friends, okay, so it happens in, 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 in many realms of, 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 of ethics. But let's just take particularly for now, this second, sexual relationship ethics. What is allowable? What's permissible? How should I be living my life before the face of God? When you look at fellow believers, and, and, and they're in your five friends group, and those ethics have shifted, you will inevitably ask yourself, have I missed something? Because the five people that you trust have undergone a shift. Why would you be the one who didn't see what is right? I must be holding on to something wrong. You see how critical influence is, how critical friendship is to the overall strategy of living the wise life. It is often the relationships that power the change, not the text. To press on in our need for wisdom, I would say further, 
this personal help, that, that, that is to have a friend, to, 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 to invest in the church as an organism. This sense of present, that, and I mean by present accountability, I mean a person physically there. Some, a person, n- n- not a recording, or a, or a movie, or a show, or a podcast. I mean a person. This sense of personal and present accountability cannot, cannot be outsourced. By replacing them with podcasts, third-party Facebook posts. You don't know that individual. They said X. I'm going to retweet it. Or I think confusion of platforms. Retweeting takes place on Twitter. Various platforms. I follow them. I like them. Or I heart them. And I tweet them. All those pieces that I'm, I'm, I'm socially networking and identifying. All those elements. It, that person... That algorithm, those ideas that, that go unchallenged, that virtue signal, that contribute to the moral shift in the, in the web of relationships that all of the people are crowdsourcing and the call-out culture to like, 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 and you're like, ooh, I better like. Again, we need courage. And we cannot outsource our growth in the biblical text away from the church into podcasts or to third-party Facebook postings. We cannot afford, again, and, and this is, I'm laying a foundation, I'm just pouring the cement, and then we'll just go from here, brick by brick. But there's a massive warning, perhaps to us as parents, more so, is that we cannot afford to merely consume pre-digested Christian material either simply grabbing a book from a pop culture Christian guru or maybe always going to the same podcast for Pastor So-and-so says, we cannot do that. When it comes to our own need to do the work of thinking seriously about moral and personal matters relating to our households and how we relate one with another, male and female, father and mother, Parents to children. Let me give you a small for instance or example. Maybe this is old hat to you now. I was writing this probably, I don't know, six weeks ago. So by today's standards, that, that might as well be back with the dinosaurs. Um, when I was writing this sermon, but uh, if you would just uh, go with me just for a moment. Some of you may remember, and maybe I'm talking to the older people in the room, the, the, the five of us. Um, some of you may remember the book in the late 90s, again, the late 90s. Um, it was published in 1997, and the book took youth groups of a conservative type, what would probably be you know, very similar to Redeemer, uh, and then more cranky than that. So, so from us, then more cranky. Um, conservative churches by storm. And it was entitled, the book was entitled, I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Josh Harris. I don't know, don't give a show of hands. We don't want to out anybody or whatever. Um, if you had to read it, if it was prerequisite reading in your youth group or not. And his follow-up book that then came after that was I, I, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And, and then after that, he wrote Boy Meets Girl, which was, which was the follow-up to, to explain uh, the pleasures that he's found in boy meeting girl based on the following of his own advice and what he wrote in I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Th- this is the idea of the book, if you've ever heard of them. Uh, if you haven't, I just gave you the two-second version. Um, the, the one about uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye was um, a, a road-mapped courtship. And then you can get off into the weeds on deciding what's courtship versus dating and so on and so forth. And we don't have any of that time today. But that's the idea. You get off into the weeds and you decide, is this dating or am I courting? Uh, which one is going to give me the promised land of a great marriage? That's the idea. And then, and then he told you which one is going to give you the great marriage in the book. And then once he found a great marriage, he then wrote the second book to tell you, see, evidence is in. I have a great marriage because I did my own principles. You can follow likewise and have what I have. That, that's the breakdown. And every parent who was worried about their 13-year-old and up was like grabbing the book off the shelves. Every youth group was like, oh my word, finally somebody's saying don't date and make out with your girlfriend everywhere. Come on, pass these books out like crazy. 
And that's what it was. And it was, it was a cool, attractive kind of guy who could set that vibe for everybody to kind of be cool and quit dating. And so places were eating it up and eating it up. Now, as far as my own personal thought on the book, I think like, it could be read to great advantage. I really, you know, maybe it's because I'm on the cranky spectrum, but I, I, there, there's, there's wisdom in it. It doesn't, that's, that's what we need, right? We need wisdom. Not to just simply say, I need a formula. And that's where we went wrong, is we need formulas. Again, evangelicals, American evangelicals. And I don't say something that you don't know about. And it's not off the beaten path. This is what we're dealing with. And this is what I'm calling you to think on. The need for wisdom. Because again, evangelicals love steps, principles, keys, secrets, Things that will accomplish the goal. That's where, like, like, don't tell me how you made the sandwich. Just give me the sandwich. What is it? Okay, it's, it's just basically bread, meat, and cheese. Boom! Three keys to a good sandwich. That's all I needed. I don't need to know how it's made. I don't need to know what the, uh, how it's all broke down. I don't know what its health outcomes are. I just spare me the time. Give me the keys. Because I'm really just looking to, like, use what I possess to accomplish what I want. And I want to use my faith to leverage it into a great marriage. And if you doubt for a second that that's how we're handling it in evangelicalism, just think that these books, all these seven steps, quick fix, one-size-fits-all programs that we just love, each one of them, track how many of them come with promised deliverables. And then ask yourself, and perhaps you've experienced this, what happens to a person's faith when the deliverables don't come? I did what you said, and it didn't work. What does that mean for someone's faith? On the purity culture item, and again, I think that's a bad way to respond to all that's going on in the purity culture. Again, I don't mean to step on anybody's oxygen, but um, I, I think it's, it's unfair, it's shorthand, and, and it's um, dismissive of what is otherwise very good stuff. Uh, if you could just apply it with wisdom, but we can't. We have to find some formula, boil it down to ten talking points, and then ruin people otherwise with it. Um, uh, as far as uh, the, the idea, though, I do think where we've gone wrong with young people, maybe with some of you, which is why we find ourselves sexually, ethically, where we are today as a church, is because we have often said, and I've heard it said at various talking points, I I grew up, I'm a kid of the 90s, I I was born in 80, so the 80s were great, 90s were whatever. Um, And and when I was going through that place, I was just approaching purity, what they call purity culture, whatever, in the 90s. I was in a youth group, I was 16 or so. I wasn't huge on the scene of youth groups, I was in and out. Um, uh, but the idea oftentimes in the purity discussions, and I, was a, I wouldn't call myself a victim in anything, but, 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 I, but I would say a part of what's been given to me at times, maybe to you, is that we've set purity or, or, or um, one's own uh, purity before the Lord. We've set on the wrong terminal point. We've often encouraged people, remain pure for your future spouse. Um. What happens to a whole host of people who end up not finding that spouse? What does purity mean then? It was always cast on the wrong terminal point. Your, your life, your body, holiness and your sexual relationships and the ethical life that you live, including pornography. If you just simply think in relationship to another person that you have no name for, no face for, you will turn the computer on every time. you will do what you want relationally based on a no name, no person who is nowhere physically present. The terminal point was wrong. Your life now, as your life then, and your life in the future, the holiness that with which you maintain your body sexually is before God, for the glory of God. That circles all the way back to not being a no name with no face, 
but a constant nourishing word that comes to your soul through the life of the church. That gives longevity to sexual ethics. When I come to Lord's Day and I receive from this table, this body and this blood, this body was broken for me, this blood was poured out for me, I am to do this unto my own soul's nourishment in remembrance of him. Not in no remembrance of anything or no thing, but a remembrance of him. And that nourishment and that person and that Lord and that shepherd and that Savior gives to me a normalizing sexual behavior because I love him. And it matters to him and it matters to me. Whether I get married or I don't. This was a pitfall of the evangelical deliverables. They just did not deliver. Why is this noteworthy, perhaps, in the bigger picture? Well, I think you know where I'm going on that. Why is this noteworthy on the boy meets girl and the I kiss dating goodbye? If you follow this, I promise you'll have that. Well, because last month, which again, I think I wrote this about six weeks ago, so whatever that is back. And of course, you all know by now, it's hit the storm. It's hit the fan. Uh, Josh Harris announced his divorce from his wife of 20 years. If you were tracking it all in his uh, theological progress, and you're tracking him, which none of you are, it's boring for you. Not for me. I'm in the business of it. So it was interesting to me to watch someone's uh, theological movements, choices that they make, uh, the progress that they demonstrate, and to just see kind of where that washes out. Last year, he began a sort of apology tour for his book. He went around navel-gazing, Self-slapping, admitting all the bad advice that he gave people for years. Asked the publisher to stop circulating the book because of all of the arrogance of certainty that he put in it and all of the harm that it has done to so many. Somehow, the deliverables that he promised, he himself did not receive. We have to ask ourselves for a moment then. Maybe that's not how scripture is meant to be read. Or maybe that's not how I was meant to live the Christian life. With seven steps with an ultimate goal of promise fulfilled. I think Josh Harris found that out. And, and if you're fair to him, he has many things that have gone on in his evangelical life. Uh, and some things, I, I, I feel bad for him, uh, and not in a petty way. Uh, he's very successful. I mean, uh, the way that evangelicalism oftentimes can chew up their own talent, because they often think of them as talent, it's somewhat like sending a child to Hollywood to be a childhood actor. Uh, they kind of like get eaten up by the machinery, and then kind of their utility wears out, and they're kind of cast aside. There's very, a lot of parallelisms in evangelical publishing and so forth. So in some ways, he, he's been uh, beaten up pretty good. So my point is not to you this morning to litigate his divorce. I can't, and I don't know what's going on. And as I've said before, um, no matter how thin the pancake, there's always two sides. So it would be impossible for us to be able to figure out who, who did what and what's taking place. Rather, my point with us is that he, and I want to stress this to you, um, what we've heard about Josh Harris in the last few weeks, renouncing his faith, renouncing his marriage, is just one example of many, of many, that demonstrates the foolishness of looking to a thought leader or a guru for a simple blueprint for one-size-fits-all approach to Christian life or to relational ethics, sexual ethics, dating, professional, marital, or otherwise. Again, what do we need instead um, of a guru? What do we need instead of a thought leader or a new article posted at the Gospel Coalition? What do we need instead of that? What do we need instead of six steps, two keys, and a handful of promises? We need the church as a living organism. That is what we, the people of God, need. 
That is what our Lord has ordained. Is the church as a living organism. What do I mean by that? But that you and I, those who confess the faith, we need to hear the preaching of the word of God. There was a small kind of uh, uh, thought leaders of evangelicalism were giving some really bad advice in the early 2000s. And, and that was, um, you know, preach the gospel to yourself. And while that might be helpful at some level to remind yourself that indeed you have been washed, you have been forgiven, you have been rinsed, it gave many people the false impression that that could be the Christian experience. Preaching to yourself. Whether it be the law or the gospel. The institution of the church became at least secondary, if not tertiary to the Christian life. This is not how the pilgrim journey is meant to be. We need those who are outside of us to preach to us, myself included. We need to be nourished upon the sacraments. And we need to be holding to counsel with fellow believers in the path of wisdom. I know this is a bit introductory and it's unique for Redeemer to go through a sermon like this. It's different, it's proverbial, less textual. But again, I'm laying a foundation for you to think with me. Let me note two additional pieces in the Christian life. Something that is a little bit random, but it's annexed to what we're talking about tonight. And I'm speaking now to the older gentlemen. Those of us who are within a strike of 40 years old. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching this deadly turn in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm 38. And so I'm now coming up on like, you remember those skid pants from the 80s, anybody? But um, they have a sign, any which way, skid marks. I'm approaching that in my, my own life now. I've been talking to Dan as my psychiatrist for a few weeks now um, about approaching 40. Um, and again, we have made kind of the midlife crisis thing silly, um, that there isn't such a thing, or some guy gets a new haircut and buys a new car, and we joke about it being a midlife crisis. Um, I, I, again, no medical doctor. There's a few in the room. Maybe they could clarify, meet with them later. I'm just giving you my observations. Um, I, I, I think that there is something, men and ladies, um, to uh, uh, the midlife crises. I, I do think there's something physiologically, perhaps, that takes place. And again, I'm no scientist, sorry. But I am saying, I, I do think that it, it appears to be, and I'm going to give you evidence in just a moment, but there appears to be, when, when you hit puberty, right, there's different changes that go on in your body to prepare you for your next phase. Um, and I, I, I got to believe, and I, I'm just a believer in nature, I guess, at this point. But I, I, I do believe that there is some sort of transition that is taking place um, when you're heading somewhere, somewhere, and I can't pinpoint it, I see a doctor, but it's somewhere between approaching 40 and just after 40, that there is something that happens to people. And if you don't channel your concerns and thoughts carefully as you approach that period in life, you're going to make some huge mistakes. Allah, I get to use Dan as my psychiatrist. He doesn't have a couch, but I still just use him. There's things that you have to be honest about in your own life. I'll give you a small example. This may be of interest to you. If you're watching the life of evangelicalism as I am, or you are at least a little bit on the periphery, you're probably wise to the fact that Pastor Tulian Tavidian, perhaps you recall listening to his sermons, reading his books, I forget, one of them was really, really good. Um... Uh, nothing but Christ, or all but Christ, or nothing but Christ. Something along those lines. It was great. He's done a great job. But if you recall, he ended up shipwrecking, shipwrecking his marriage. And then a bunch of bad things came after that. A bunch of, like, kind of moving. You know how investigations get started. Once an investigation gets started, they unearth all kinds of things. And there was a lot there. Don't worry, he's reinventing himself in Miami. He'll be fine. But the truth still stands. Interesting, he's right around 40. Um, Mark Driscoll, perhaps you noted, the, the, the evangelical superstar from the early 2000s, mid-2000s. Again, a great talent that boomed and blossomed the church, created the Acts 29 network, also right around 40. Maybe you're mindful. The wheels fell off his bus and it crashed. Not physically, 
mentally, theologically. He was like that comet that like shot across the sky, bright, starry, wooed the world and completely burned out. Devastatingly so. Right around 40, Darren Patrick, another pastor from St. Louis of a megachurch, perhaps you recall, same thing. Marty Sampson, do any of you know who that is? The 20-year, he wrote for Hillsong for 20 years. One of his most noteworthy songs, he's got a lot of great music. Oh, praise the name. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. We've done it a bunch of times here at Redeemer. Rich. He announced, what, two weeks ago on Instagram, he doesn't believe in uh, the faith anymore. 20 years of writing music for Hillsong. Songs where you're like, wow. Interesting, I want to draw your attention to him because he's the most recent. His Instagram post was this. I I took a a small piece. It's been stripped down from Instagram now, so you can't find it. You know, again, you've got to play these cards carefully if you're going to reinvent yourself. It's been stripped down. How many preachers fall? Many. This is his rant on Instagram. 20 years of writing for Hillsong. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. We are right now. How many miracles? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love, yet send four billion people to a place all because they do not believe? No one talks about it. If you stop for a moment and you let him just rant on, are you not often amazed, as I, at how many people seem to think that they are alone or the very first in seeing some objection to Christianity? This guy somehow has proven by his own thoughts no one has ever wrestled with the thought of hell or the problem of evil. Secondly, to his admission and his renouncing the faith, they cannot seem to imagine, as they rant about the faith that they have since loved, perhaps for 20 or plus years, they somehow cannot imagine a plausible solution to the difficulty of Christianity. means that one is not available. If they cannot solve the riddle here and now on Instagram, there is no solving it. Think of how shallow that is. And it hurts people. And I, I'm not, this is probably the first time I've ever mentioned, I think, specific people uh, in a sermon. Again, rare, but it's introductory to where we need to go as believers. Do you know how many people's faith is wounded by that kind of nonsense? I just told you, how many miracles are there? Not many. No one mentioned it to you, did they? Hmm. Obviously, the Bible's not true. And they're like, wow. A, a guy who wrote Hillsong 20 years? Hmm, maybe I should. Wait, that goes back to the web of relationships. How many people do I listen to, and how do they influence me? Because this dude was at the center of the zeitgeist of Christianity, and he has figured out no one talks about the difficulties of Christianity. What am I missing? Perhaps I should renounce my faith also. Write it off as shallow, not meaningful. Again, many of these people, let me encourage you as we kind of wind down our time. Many of these folks, whether it's uh, Tulian, Driscoll, Patrick, Samson, Josh Harris, James McDonald, many of these folks you've listened to or perhaps thought of and listened to, read their articles on the Gospel Coalition, listened to their podcasts, followed their sermons, many of these people now acting behaviorally aberrant, none of them are looking for real answers. That's not the goal. They're looking for excuses to perform moral behavior. The outrage is over here. See? While I'm doing this over here. Nobody talks about Christianity and all of its difficulties. Nobody has any answers in 2,000 years of the church. No one ever wrote a book about that. Well, I'm over here doing this. And all the call-out culture rushes over to the scene. You're right. I've never heard a sermon on that one time in my entire life. Christianity is fake. Hashtag false. 
And then, boom. <laughs> Ten million people, boom. Down with it, down with it. This is a lie. It's all a sham. It couldn't be anything to do with me and my shallowness. Mm, no, that's off the table. It's off the table. What we know is it's Christianity itself that stands at the center and has made a mess of all of our lives. It's denied me from having the promiscuous life that I wish to have. In fact, that's kind of, ooh, there's an idea. I want to have a promiscuous life because there's a bunch of people I'm interested in my life. And that kind of gets in the way. My Christianity gets in the way. You know what? I've got to find a way to denounce the faith, receive the praise of my peers, and then move into the moral, immoral life I really wanted to be living the whole time. Never mind the shipwrecked faith that I left all behind me in my wake with a bunch of people who followed my example like sheeple. We've got to come out of guru self-help seven-step series outcomes. And we've got to begin to think wisely. Think in my closing comment to you this morning. I could have been going for three hours now. I don't really know. You do, but I, <laughs> I don't know. There's so much more I want to say. Um, let, let, let me just end, end this way. End this way. When life disappoints or feels empty, I need all of you to pull me out of that in two years from now. I'm, I'm approaching 40. That's when it'll start to feel that way for me. I'll begin to ask myself, what am I doing to myself, why did I choose this life? No, when life does disappoint, it inevitably will. Or it begins to feel empty and claustrophobic, like there's not enough oxygen in the room. Please hear this. This is my concluding comment, I promise. When it begins to feel that way, whether you're trying to take a courageous stance on sexual ethics in a very intense relationship, or, 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 or in, your, in your marital life, in that relationship, or broader in your faith, in its relationships, or in your career, and you're trying to maintain stability, and life gets disappointing, or it feels empty because of what you're doing, it's too easy. Do you hear that? Please hear that. Again, I'm winding it down. I'm landing the plane. It is too easy to think that the problem was one of content. I have a mess. I'm suffocating. I want a life out there where the air is. I want to get out of these circumstances, out of this relationship, out of this constraint. The people of Psalm 2. It's too easy then for me to move and say that the problem in my life is one of content. In other words, I would quote myself as saying, I have believed all the wrong things. That is way too easy. The list of names I gave you, that's the out. I believe the wrong things. Instead of thinking more honestly about your own sin, your own sin habits, and thinking, it's not one of content that's wrong in my life. Principally, the Orthodox faith isn't its contents. It's Nicene Creed. It's Apostle Creed. Isn't the problem. The Bible isn't the problem. It's not content-based why I feel like there's no air in the room. It's one of manner. The problem is manner. I have believed things in the wrong way. I believe this seven-step system because I wanted to accomplish that outcome. There's your problem. That's it. All of our problem. We're hardwired for doism. And we want easy outcomes. So when it doesn't outcome... I should look and say, it's, I've believed things wrongly. I did it so I could get that. I used these relationships for that outcome. Rather than a simple, easy, it's content-based. It's just the things I believed are obviously wrong. Look at my trashy life. When we fail in our perspective... Our perspective, we often have a major doctrinal or ethical shift take place in our lives. Don't be surprised at 40 when people find a new permissive version of the faith. 
Somehow they just figured it out. Ask them their age. And then get back to me, because I'm building a case study. (laughs) It's not bravery. They're not brave. They're not heroes. They're objectively choosing simplicity and autonomy over wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us as we endeavor to look at the gory details of the wise life. That you'll help us. We have become so shallow as a church. The church, particularly of, uh, of America, we're shallow. We have leveraged the faith for decades to accomplish what we want, whether it's politically or it's socially or it's ethically. We have used it as a power tool to get us where we want to be, and we are suffering its effects everywhere. You know this far greater than I. Your assessment is omniscient. From a macro scale to a micro scale, each one of us has a shallow existence oftentimes. Grant us the grace and humility to admit it, Help us to be your people, to be wise as serpents. Help us with that. Again, often we'd rather choose to blame you and your content so we can live a naive and simplistic life, but it's the life of sin that we want. Help us to endure. Give us courage. We pray for this series as it opens up. Guide us. Give us your text very clearly, applicably so so that we have the grace to hear, to repent, and to endeavor after a life of new obedience. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.